Welcome to Insecurity, a podcast about computer security built from the ground up. Visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, the show notes, and to leave comments. You can contact us by sending an email to feedback at in-security.org. Or follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name is Matt. And my name's Max. So how's your week this week, buddy? Oh, man, it's going good, but um, I can't wait for next week. What's big and exciting? Next week, I get to shave. <laughs> so you've been uh, rocking this Movember stash. Yeah, I've been uh, follically challenged and growing it, um, but it has been, what, like 26 days now? So it's actually visible to the naked eye. If you're very close. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've seen some. I've seen some photos. I've seen some video. Yeah, and I, I use uh, people ridiculing me to my advantage and say that's fine. Just donate, and we're good to go. Nice. Well done. In case anyone's wondering, this is recorded in November, so Max has been partaking of the uh, the Movember, growing a mustache for men's health. Men's health awareness. Excellent news. Uh, so quick thing here. This is unfortunately our first complete wipe of an, uh, of a good show. Um, we already recorded the, this episode, but it just really due to technical failure didn't work out. Yeah, that was really weird. So add another couple of things that we got to check before we start recording and won't experience that again. Hopefully. Yeah, we should be good now. Uh, any errata any follow-up any no no errata or follow-up on my side the uh, music that you heard on the intro and that you'll hear on the outro is uh something that an online buddy of mine named dennis Trainin recorded um he also goes by the name of our little secret on soundcloud so you please by all means check him out if you want to, to grab a link to his soundcloud profile go ahead and jump on to the uh the show notes We'll have it li- linked there. And again, thank you, Dennis. We appreciate it. Uh, we've updated the the website quite a bit. We've got the the logo going. We've got the iTunes submission going, and everything. Very good points. That's all our our back end news. That's maybe exciting, maybe interesting, mildly. We do it for you. <laughs> yeah. So what's uh, what's on the docket for this week? So this episode, we're going to talk about uh, what a botnet is, how they work, what it means. Before we actually just hop right into that, there's probably a few terms that we should discuss and just get some clarity on. Such as so, botnet? Well, botnet's one of them, um, but we'll get there. Don't jump ahead. Uh, first is a virus. We've discussed a virus before. It's a self-replicating malicious program that runs on somebody's computer and self-replicates and gets more things infected. Next term that's important is uh, a Trojan. 
And we hinted about Trojans before when we talked about people tricking you to install something. The name Trojan comes from the, the Trojan horse mythology. That was the delightful story about the, uh, was it Roman Greek soldiers? They were laying siege to a castle and then they were stuck outside and then they, uh, uh, they couldn't actually get into the castle. So what they ended up doing was they built this giant present to thank their uh, combatants, their opponents, for being such such genial opponents, being so good at war. A giant wooden horse, right? That uh, at all could not contain an army inside of it. Don't you worry. And they managed to hide inside of it. And then uh, I guess someone knocked on the, the gates and ran away. Here you go. Bye. And then at that point, the, the opposing army wheeled the giant horse into their uh, castle or wherever they were besieged. And at night, the army jumped out and slaughtered everybody inside. Yeah, that's right. You think they would have learned their lesson after that giant wooden bunny rabbit that they got catapulted over. <laughs> it was the Greeks using to enter the city of Troy. That's right. Uh, we'll go ahead and we'll put a link to that in the show notes in case you want to read up more about it. Sounds good. Well, in the context of um, what we're discussing, the Trojan horse is essentially just something that someone gets you to run on your own computer that then unleashes bad stuff onto your machine, right? Yeah, it gets you, they convince you to download and install like a malicious driver like we talked about in the past or just run a program maybe it's bundled in with a game that you wanted or whatnot and uh is creates a hook on your machine for people to come back into that would be things like fake software drivers fake um, software that you're running um, fake email attachments from people that you know of that look innocent but in actuality are not from them and are, are just malicious there's also been ones attached to screensavers and stuff like that Yes, just generally the stuff we talked about in, in show six. Yeah. Then there's the worm, which we touched on in show six and a little bit in show seven. It was the Robert Morris worm was the first worm ever. This is uh, something that goes around and infects you based on vulnerabilities in your software that can automate and hop from your PC, find another vulnerable PC, attack that one, so on and so forth. Ad infinitum. Huh? I'm all kinds of Latin today. You are. And then there's another concept that we haven't touched on yet, which is rootkit, which is one of the most nefarious types of malware. All of this stuff we're talking about is in the category of malware. So a rootkit is uh, something that infects your machine at the kernel level and then makes it so that your machine can't even report back the usage of network services or service running or whatever. It just It's a total stealth mode kind of Trojan or stealth mode virus, right? Something that's infected your computer so completely that it's able to completely be invisible to what you can see as a user of the computer. There's been a couple interesting cases of this um, other than the completely nefarious evil uses. There's been uh, Sony at one time was giving, uh, not giving, but selling CDs and it had a rootkit on it and to play the music from the CD on your computer, you had to install this program, which was actually a rootkit, which looked for pirated music. This was 
um, several years back, maybe 10 years, when the record industries would stop at nothing to find people downloading MP3s and listening to pirated music. Was this Sony's own initiative or is this under the, the MPAA that uh, spurred them on to doing this? It was Sony's own initiative. It was horrible because it creates this backdoor on your computer and Sony never programmed it to be secure, right? So it just left a gaping hole in your computer which you couldn't see or know or do anything about it. And then they released a way to uninstall it which was also horribly broken and didn't really do anything. So uh, eventually they came out with something that actually did remove it. But at, when you're so thoroughly compromised at a stage like that, it's probably safest just to wipe out your computer and start from scratch. But even if they released a way to uninstall it, that's not necessarily going to have people who have gone through and infected themselves by simply buying a CD uh, and listening to it thinking that they're just listening to that music, they're not necessarily going to be following up on the tech aspect of it in any way, shape, or form. So they could very well be just sitting there with a computer that's still compromised to this day. Absolutely, if they never found out about it. Or even if they found out about it, never assumed that it affected them. Very good points. So those are part of the malware suite. I guess there's also another one called ransomware where someone will infect your machine and um, once they've compromised your machine, they'll, they'll put up a warning, either through a Trojan or whatnot. They'll go through and they'll encrypt your hard drive and they'll say to gain access to be able to decrypt your hard drive, what you have to do is pay us money to this account. That is nefarious. Now, there's lesser versions of that as well. There's ones that I, I ran into personally a while back where it actually popped up looking like it was a legitimate update for Flash. And essentially running the uh, downloading and running the update would make your computer lock up and uh, access to the internet was very much restricted uh, insofar as you really... Anytime you loaded it up, all that would happen is you would get to a page that said, hey, your computer's infected with a virus. All the contents of the hard drive were still there. The only thing that was going on is there was some software running in the background. If you ran, uh, if you went into the task manager, you would find processes that didn't actually need to be running. Um, trying to execute any kind of executable files that were tied to, you know, major antivirus softwares like running Norton, running uh, Kaspersky, any of these things ended up just basically it would stop them as soon as they tried to run. Uh, everything was still available on your hard drive. It just kept telling you, oh, hey, there's a uh, there's a virus on your computer and you have to buy this software to uninstall it. That's a good uh, it's a good way of seeing the things that are running on your machine is by taking a look at your services and sometimes you can see that there's a service that's running on your machine that doesn't look like it should be there. Most of the time, it's not called like keeping you hacked.exe running, right? It's they try to blend in with the other services that exist there. So if there's something that looks like um, your Windows logon service or your Unix logon service, if you don't know which to kill, you might be very unsure to try to to kill this task. Um, because it could just kick you out of the machine. More often than not, for a while, that was my uh, 
my first line of troubleshooting after running into that on a couple of people's computer was just look at all the processes that are running and then just start systematically Googling each one to figure out, or I don't know, depends on how long ago this was, using InfoSeq to look up on each one to find out <laughs> which ones shouldn't be there. Yeah, that's true. One of the things you touched on was actually the catalyst for downloading this. So it was like on a website or it was embedded in something within a website that had led you to want to install this flash that you thought you didn't have the latest and greatest version of, right? Right. That was an example of the Trojans again. So there's the malware itself and then there's the vector for people to infect you. So, you know, there's, if you go and you visit an infected website, it could be something like cnn.com or, or, you know, any news site or any, any website that, that drives a lot of traffic, those are targets for attack. If somebody can compromise them and put up malware hosted on that website, then people already have a trust associated with that website and they're more likely to install the malicious content from there. Um, or you could host your own website that houses malicious content with domain names very similar to trusted ones like cnm.com or something like that, right? And then you send out emails to people or you'll count on them mistyping the name. You've, you've branded the site the same as the legitimate site and you trick people into clicking on and downloading malicious content like that. There's a, another newer concept where you'll have a bunch of people within a community uh, who go to a site and, and you amass these people at this site and it's called a waterhole attack, just like how animals in the safari will go and they'll meet up at like this watering hole and they'll all kind of share the water. You can have, say, developers who are programming these programs for computers to run go to a help site that you've increased in popularity based on SEO, uh, which is search engine optimization, which is a technique for tricking search engines to rank that page higher. Or you can just build up this reputation and have people go into your site and have that site be compromised, right? And then be hosting this malicious content. So you can attack people this way. And the way that these techniques typically work is if there's a vulnerability in the browser, then there's this concept called a drive-by downloading where someone who is just browsing the site can have their browser attacked by the web page itself and be tricked to start to download a malicious part of, um, of a program that, that will start the infection of the computer. And it's typically that somebody downloads an initial program loader and then when that runs, that'll go and connect out to download all of the whole bad packages that create the backdoors for people to connect to or the commands for you to connect to another server elsewhere to, to start telling people that I am infected. So would a watering hole attack be uh, an example of that anecdote that I told before about uh, the time that Facebook ended up getting superseded on Google by some article about Facebook wherein people ended up just logging on or putting in their usernames and passwords into this other site because it came up first through Google other than like before Facebook. 
And then at that point, if they had decided to do malicious things on their website when they had that traffic, anyone who was actively trying to get to Facebook, is that maybe an example of that? Yeah, I think that's kind of a hybrid between the phishing component and the websites um, that are hosting malicious content and a waterhole attack because of the SEO component that they had where they made it more attractive for people to click on than actually Facebook itself. Somebody had taken the time to figure out how to exploit the way in which Google ranks uh, page results so that they're more attractive. What is an example of a way to exploit um, big sites, that sites like CNN and stuff maybe? So it's possible that there's a latent vulnerability on the website or the web server itself that's going to be serving up this content that people haven't discovered yet. And so somebody who finds the vulnerability that's uh, like a zero-day vulnerability that there's no patches for, or that even if there is a patch, say it's like day one or day two post-patch, um, but the administrators haven't gotten around to patch it yet, you know, potentially somebody could use that exploit to compromise the site and then have that site serve up malicious content. But another thing that people can do, which is quite clever, is they can uh, rent out ads within the same type of ad network that hosts the ads that are presented, say, on CNN.com, for example. And if they can host like a malicious ad within, say, Google AdWords or doubleclick.net or whatever, one of these other ad hosting sites that is commonly used, then that can trigger a compromise on somebody's computer, like one of these drive-by download um, exploits against the browser. Not as frequently now, but before uh, flash type ads used to be very big. So people would always be putting out ads instead of just having um, one of the things Google does right now with its ad words is it essentially just sells a couple of uh, lines of text uh, in which there's not that much availability or room for malicious code to be executed. In the past, when they would have things like flash, um, little flash movies that were playing, flash itself had a lot of uh, capability to have really diverse things happening in it instead of just, you know, moving pictures and video like that. It had the ability to embed links. It had the ability to run external code. In fact, it even had the ability to go out and call to another website to incorporate or to uh, import code, which meant that during the time that the, uh, the, the flash movies and stuff like that might be tested, at that point, they had nothing going out. It would call and it would just import, you know, uh, variables or useless information. And then later on, it was easy for the developers to simply input malicious code and have it, as it's still importing the same file, they didn't change the file that it's importing to include malicious code. Adobe's gotten a lot better at uh, looking out for the security within Flash and whatnot, but for a while, they were just adding more and more features, more and more lines of code, more and more bugs, uh, potentially exploitable security bugs. And they, Flash was getting, 
Flash was a method for propagating malicious content um, because it was exploitable. Um, but then there, I mean, there's other techniques as well, right? You can have uh, an ad within a, a frame that creates an iframe that's got an overlay that has something you click on. So you think you're clicking on even the ad itself. Maybe it's like a punch the monkey type flash thing that's going back and forth, but it's got an overlay to it that as soon as you click in there, that's like an accept, I accept button or whatnot to download some sort of software and all this other mean activities. So, okay. So we've talked about types of malware. We've talked about vectors to compromise someone. And why would somebody want to compromise your home PC? Right? It's like, what's the value? I'm just, I'm just grandpa over here and, you know, I've got this old computer and, you know, I don't do a lot of stuff on my computer. So really, why would somebody want to compromise me? And to answer that question, I'd like to point you all to this fantastic article by this guy called Krebs, Brian Krebs. And he has a website called Krebs on Security. And there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, and it talks about the scrap value of a PC. So if you look at how people monetize attacks, you can. he does a great break, breakdown of all of the different ways that somebody can monetize your PC and extract more money out of it than you would yourself. But before we get into that, I think we should talk a little bit about the history of... Um, malicious actors, right? So initially, somebody would figure out a way to compromise a, a PC and they would just do it to brag to their friends. They're like, oh, I, I hacked this many people's PCs. Right? Oh, I tricked them to, do, to install this program and look, I can watch what they're typing and I can move their mouse around their screen and really mess them up, right? And freak, freak these people out. Or, you know, I can... I can record them going to maybe pornographic sites or something like that and then laugh about it with my friends and maybe send them an email about it. So initially it was kind of prank-based and, and bragging-based. Prank-based and bragging rights. Yeah, and, and even then, like compromising a web page out there. Web pages used to be a lot more static and less diverse than they are now. And people who would compromise uh, a web server would put up like a, a page over that first splash page saying like hacked by so-and-so of so-and-so hacking group or whatever, right? And it'd be like bragging rights within the underground of people who are doing this type of stuff. I don't know if that's exclusive to originally. I think that's probably a way that a lot of people that end up actually doing it found out that that was a thing they were interested in even doing because like one of the first things i remember doing is uh goofing around by you know you would install um like a way to control someone's mouse over a network and then you would just do that as a prank and you'd be like hey this is actually kind of fun and then you'd maybe start looking into like what else can i get it to do and i'm not saying that these things don't continue on today all i'm saying is that this is kind of the roots of this uh, of people compromising other people's accounts and computers. And then there's obviously the ones where somebody wants to gain access to something that they're not allowed to have access to. 
And so they find a way to bypass those controls, which we've talked about in previous episodes. But then people started discovering that, hey, if I can remotely compromise someone's PC, I can do more than just prank them, right? The criminal world started to discover there is some value in doing this, right? There is email spam for a reason, right? It's profitable. If I can convince the email spam has been up there for a while, right? And just sending out people's links to say, hey, come here to buy Viagra, come here for breast enhancement or penile enhancement pills or whatever's cure, right? Before it was like the direct con artistry, there was there was these markets that were kind of fringe markets that were selling um, snake oil, basically. Like in the comic books with the x-ray specs. Absolutely. And so criminal organizations started to see value in this, right? To start these gray markets and black markets and distribute it and, and send out these mass emails because you could get millions of people just for, you know, a couple cents with email. And then people started noticing that there's more value here, right? Now I can actually compromise people to make these email spammers and maybe they send out a thousand emails and fly under the radar without getting caught or you know the old protection racket hey uh you want to keep your web server online why don't you uh, pay me a little money and i'll i'll protect it for from that oh you didn't pay me money look your website's down you've been denied service to it so that's a i don't think we've talked about the denial of service yet have we nope I think we did prior to the uh, the loosening of the episode. Mm-hmm. But that's all denial of services, right? Like it's denying someone's service. And there's a few different ways to do it. You can just do it by flooding somebody with an, enough traffic. You can do it by occupying the web server so that instead of sending its responses back out to the people who are requesting it, it sends it out to these spoofed IP addresses, uh, which are... IP addresses that never actually initiated and aren't listening for a response. When we talked about back about how TCP/IP works, there's the the whole handshake that goes across, and if someone's handshake only goes halfway and the other person's not responding to that, that takes up resources that can't be serving other people's requests. Or there's a, a method that can be used where you use up all of the memory resources on a PC because there's a vulnerability that allows you to do that on the web server. Um, So that's basically denial of service techniques. And there's ways to mitigate those by patching and by scaling across and having multiple web servers handling the traffic so you don't run into this limitation of how many ports you can have to respond to requests, things like that. Right. And then there was also the... uh, you know, the, the criminal organization was finding that, that there's value in, in doing these campaigns against people. And now people are seeing that if there's value in one PC being compromised, there's value in more PCs being compromised. And so they start compromising these PCs 
and having them report back to a centralized control PC or website or internet relay chat channel or whatever, right? And they look for the next commands that, that are for them. And then this is the concept of a botnet. So we have a PC that's compromised and, and we term them as zombies because they're just brainless machines out there ready to do someone's bidding. And the bot herder, who's the master of all of these zombies, who's controlling this channel to, to send these people out to do their bidding, these bot herders are basically administrating these number of PCs that are out there compromised. And there could be thousands of PCs that are compromised or millions of PCs that are compromised that are reporting back to, the, to these channels. And these channels are called command and control channels. And basically, it's just the program that's running on these compromised PCs understands a certain syntax, like a, like a basic protocol. And it says, okay, I'm going to listen for a command and then I'm going to execute the command. And so that might be, hey, everybody try to go to this website in the browser, being in denial of service. Or send this email out on my behalf. Or you know, whatever else someone wants them to do. Some of the benefits in terms of having, you know, heaps of uh, emails being sent out on your behalf is that various ISPs limit the maximum amount of traffic over the email ports. So if you just try and flood every single email address that exists with email, you're going to end up getting shut down if you're doing it just from one machine. But so if you're then, I guess, bot herding this out to hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of machines, then the load per machine ends up being a lot lower, which means you can probably get away with, instead of getting a maximum of, for example, say, 100 emails a day, you've then got 100 emails times every machine before it even becomes suspicious. Right, and spreading out the load makes it so that nobody is sticking their head far above the line that's easy to notice and get chopped off. So all of the malicious things that people can do with PCs is what people want to have your computer to do. Um, and so going back to that Krebs on Security article about the scrap value of PCs, um, some general categories, I'll, I won't go through everything, but... Um, but we talked on DDoS, we talked on spam messages. There's also a concept called click fraud where there are some websites that, you know, you click around on some things and it gains you some money. You amalgamate that over millions of machines and that gains you a reasonable amount of, mo of money. There's even what we were discussing in the past about how you make a, a website resilient to repeated attacks as you add these captchas in there and you can have these captcha solving zombies so someone tries to go to a website and pops up this thing where they have to enter in a captcha well that's to service somebody else who's trying to attack a website somewhere else right or something like that one thing that we've experienced directly is with our website we've got the option to put comments in there and one of the things that we noticed almost immediately is you end up getting uh, hundreds, if not thousands of comments about 
as little as possible, which then try to pimp a product. So they'll essentially start talking. They'll have a line or two of, of text and then a link to their own website to try and get people who might be reading the comments to end up going to that site. Uh, they'll also have just random text generators so that it looks as though it's not necessarily just a bot that's doing this. And again, if you can send that out from dozens of computers, you can't simply block a specific user from doing it. Yeah, it's just this whack-a-mole concept. As soon as you block down one, another one pops up to do it again. There's other various options that end up working off of either having multiple accounts or multiple computers. If you've got things like online voting for even using as an example, you've got these TV programs or you've got some kind of web contest where every vote helps someone win something. People could potentially maliciously do that by simply using each individual computer on the botnet to go invite and vote for whatever their product, whatever their entry. Things like that could also be used for uh, Facebook likes, for Yelp reviews, for reviews for products. Right. Where, wherever something's reputationally based, there's a lot of value in having all of these people submit these fake reviews for reputation. And there's a market out there where people will, will go out and buy fake reviews and these botnet herders will, or some enterprising person would say, hey, I know about this gray market where I can buy botnet time for them to do this task. So I'll act as the middleman and make the money in connecting the person who wants the good value with the person who is a bad person. Other examples could be uh, product reviews or vendor reviews on sites like eBay. Yeah. These things where reputation is important, right? Where you don't want to buy a product from somebody who could potentially scam you unless they've already got a good reputation, right? And then people build up these accounts with really good reputations for selling minimal products, like a, a dollar product here, a dollar product there. So just shifting money around so that eBay looks like, oh, yes, the person's actually sending, selling something. And then they've got like these thousands of A++ would do business again with these people, right? And then uh, you as a legitimate person go, hmm, do I really want to buy this audio deck for recording my podcast off of this person? Well, looks like they've, they've got 300 great reviews from people, so I might as well just go ahead and do it. And lo and behold, you get scammed. Uh, so that's another possibility. Um, sometimes there's, you know, the category of virtual goods. So if you have like a licensed software, you can get that taken or your online, popular online video game that allows you to trade items. They could compromise your password for that and steal your virtual goods by sell- sending it to another character within the game and then selling those items to people for real money because people actually buy that and then not just virtual goods there could be your actual financial goods someone could compromise your bank account information for your online banking and just generally um, use your computer for ransomware on a on a mass scale through an intermediary hacked pc so it's pretty evident with these examples that more computing power uh in 
the form of multiple machines scales quite quickly. There are, in fact, legitimate uses for this as well, things like distributed computing, where you're effectively opting to put your computer voluntarily for a time that you actually control into a similar situation. So you're talking about the SETI at home or protein folding type things where these valid scientific reasons actually need thousands or millions of computers working on the problem to be able to solve it within a reasonable time frame. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, as, a, as an example. Yeah, and, the, and there's also people who want their computer to maybe do these things that are fringe uh, legally. Um, so, for instance, a couple years back, so there was this hacking collective uh, that went under the name Anonymous, and they may still be around, uh, who actually would have people who want, it's a hacktivist group, which is basically hacking activists. Those words merge together. So people who want to uh, rally against a cause would actually allow their computer to be used for these requests for websites that create denials of service for you know reasons such as uh, back in the day, there was uh, the WikiLeaks website. Visa didn't want to allow people to pay WikiLeaks by Visa because it's a donation-based thing. So they said, we're not going to allow Visa transactions. We're not going to allow people to pay by Visa for these transactions through to WikiLeaks. People got upset. They said, Visa, you don't have the right to do that while you're allowing people to pay for child pornography sites or whatnot, not doing anything against them. Um, so therefore, we're going to rally to the cause and we're going to use this piece of software which allows our computer to be centrally controlled to make all of these billions of requests per second on that mass spread out scale against Visa.com to therefore deny service for people to show how upset we are at, for this cause. That being just one example of what this software uh, that was called Low Orbit Ion Cannon, LOIC. We'll try and find some kind of article about, the, uh, about those specific attacks and put them into the show notes. Absolutely. Okay, so... Um, outside of the criminals who want to use your PC for these malicious means, there's also nation states that are compromising PCs and companies to gain access to their um, information secrets, their intellectual property within it. So that maybe we, sh we should have that. So that we should comment on that as well, uh, which I just did. If you were compromised, how would you know? So we discussed before about looking at the services that are running on your machine. Potentially there's something there that's a hint saying, I'm, I'm compromised. Um, another thing is, unless your computer is directly connected to the modem and is the only connected system, you have the ability to look at the logs for the network devices and, and see what kind of connections are going out. And I mean, the different types of. The different types of traffic that's going in and out. Yes. The different network devices you have will have different types of logging abilities to them. 
Um, but definitely on like an enterprise scale, you have the ability to see absolutely everything that's going on, the connections. Um, you can put in sniffers in the way for legitimate reasons to uh, intercept and see what the traffic flows are and see which ones are nefarious. If your computer is super compromised with one of these rootkits and you can't actually detect it on your PC itself, that's how an enterprise class system would be able to detect it. When we were talking about intrusion detection systems as well, it can actually see, oh, these types of connections are uh, coming into the PC that contain malware, and I'll trigger on that. Even if somebody does get uh, infected, then at least I can correlate the activity and send somebody out to go and wipe out the machine. You know, in an enterprise class system, that's something that would happen. And then, you know, there's antivirus, which will detect if... if your computer is um, infected. Hopefully, they're not super effective, but they're somewhat effective. But when you start getting to an enterprise class scale, the new stuff that's coming out is actually really interesting because it's actually looking at the network traffic and building up these these reputations for people that are connecting to them. And if it's a low reputation site, it might say, hey, this looks like a command and control site. And then it'll also update itself with known command and control sites and say, okay, your system is definitely participating in this botnet. And it'll send off an alert to somebody to go and wipe your machine. I'm not sure that I followed exactly. Is that like firewall software? or? It's not so much firewall software because firewalls are pretty much just blocking, right? Saying, I'm going to block access to this IP address. Right, or I'm never going to grant access to this IP address to connect to, to my PC. So that's how a firewall can somewhat protect against. Um, even if my machine is compromised, in an enterprise scale, you can, you can be compromised and not have this channel potentially work that goes back out to participate in the botnet. But there's this also this new type of antivirus system that's in line that is somewhat like a proxy server, which dictates what sites you are allowed to and aren't allowed to go to. In an enterprise context, there's all sorts of rules about it. And so it can, it can update itself and say, oh, the IP address that this person's going to, the web name that this person's going to, is actually known to be a botnet, and therefore I'm going to alert people to go in and fix this machine or, or deny access to itself. Uh, to the site completely by communicating with the actual proxy server or whatnot. Some of the possible failings for antivirus, as you said, that it's sometimes effective at this, would be, again, what you mentioned before in the earlier episodes, was that antivirus software generally only picks the most widely known or widely spread viruses to have into its databases anything that's new or outside of those wouldn't necessarily be noticed or cataloged or sought after by the the software. Now, do you, just putting you onto the spot here live on the air, do you know of any similar solutions for home or uh, small network type setups that would be not necessarily comparable to this enterprise level protection that you're talking about, but something that might be similar for people to take a look at. So it depends on your level of paranoia, how much effort you want to go through. 
Um, one thing that I'm experimenting with is I have a, a network tap that sits in between my router and my modem that will intercept all the traffic that goes through it and it'll log it to a, a separate computer um, using this software that's like intrusion detection software. Right? And so I'll monitor for giant spikes in traffic going out that indicate that somehow a PC within my network is compromised or communication to places that I don't actually communicate like China or Russia, right? That are established communications versus just attempted connections because I don't care if someone tries to connect to me and fails because like we said before, there's all sorts of junk out there on the internet. So architectural placement of this is somewhat important. One technique that people use to bypass these uh, firewalls and proxy sites from blocking these bad addresses is, um, is they'll use something called a fast flux DNS entry. And it's pretty ingenious because a DNS request will come back with a response saying, you want this website name? Well, that website name equates to this IP address. But more so, it'll say, and this response that I've given you is valid for X number of minutes, right? And so typically on a typical uh, request, that might be like an eight-hour limit because the website's not likely to change that much, right? But for legitimate reasons and illegitimate reasons, non-legitimate reasons, um, you can actually lower that time. So if, if the content on my web server, and say I'm experiencing a denial of service attack against my web server, well, I can put the static content, the content that doesn't change, the straight HTML web page up on, say, something like the Amazon cloud, right, that, that will serve this up. And, uh, and it'll handle the flood of requests, and it's like a scalable virtually scalable botnet that's called a cloud offering, right? That's that can dynamically create more machines to handle the requests if I'm get flooded with this. And that just charges me back for the amount of bandwidth usage and whatnot. Uh, CPU and memory usage for these these machines there. And so this content delivery network or CDN, I can put my content there and better sustain a denial of service attack. And to ha how that handles it is it actually lowers the time to live for the DNS. And it says, okay, I'm not going to keep serving up the same IP address for when somebody wants to go to ec2.amazon.com or whatever it is for the EC2 cloud. I'm going to keep changing that dynamically so that I can handle the load in case something goes down. Right, But the botnet people can leverage this as well, saying, hey, if I have that same DNS entry resolving to the same computers, that computer is going to get shut down. Uh, I'm going to get busted from people seeing that I'm keeping connecting to this. So they create these programs to automatically rotate around the command and control channel. It's very clever. And then they set the time to live on the DNS to a low level, like five minutes, right? And so this is called a fast flux DNS, where I'll keep going to this, and then it'll rotate over, and I'll go to the next place. And that old communication channel is just 
burnt and, and no longer used. That is pretty cool. Yeah, so it's this cat and mouse game that's constantly going on, this arms race, if you will, between you know the criminal side and the legitimate side trying to catch them and shut down these avenues. And, and the more that, uh, the longer time that this goes on, the more sophisticated it becomes. So you'll get the little kid in their parents' bedroom not able to keep up with the rate of change that the criminal organizations with focusing millions of dollars on coming up with these new and greater techniques on. And that's why also like it's, we're at a point right now where, you know, criminal organizations and nation states are the people who are really capitalizing on, on these problems and the individual in the basement are are the people who are getting busted and thrown in jail for, for this type of stuff. So, like everything else, there's a lot of different topics. We're just glazing over it right now so that you can get an understanding of, of what it means when you read about a botnet in, uh, in, in the New York Times or something else, uh, any website news that you might go to. Um, it's a pretty popular term nowadays. This is just a, an understanding for you to have uh, as to what is meant and how it might affect an organization, an individual, and it's a legitimate problem. People are making millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, off of the backs of individuals who just haven't kept their PC up to date or have, uh, have fallen across some of this zero-day exploit drive-by downloads or whatnot. So be on your toes, people. As always, if you feel that we should go more in-depth on any specific part of this or if you wanted any inf- additional information on any of it, Feel free to, to visit the website. You can leave comments at in-security.org. Send us a message on Twitter at InsecurityShow. Or you can email us at feedback at in-security.org. Until next week, have a great time, Matt. <laughs> Thanks. You too.